Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to the first CHD Spotlight episode for Heart Month 2023. Many of you know of Dr. Beauvais. He has worked as a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon for, okay, Dr. Beauvais, am I allowed to say how many years? Oh, sure. Go ahead, Anna. I don't know exactly how many. I'm thinking 40? Oh, yeah, about 35 anyway. Yeah, 35? Years. Okay, because yeah. I know that you started working on hypoplastic left heart syndrome babies when many people refused to do so. Yeah, that's exactly right. When I came out of my training, so this is the 80s, and I was very interested in trying to do something for these babies because it was pretty obvious that nothing could be done at that time. There were a few people that were trying. There were some, I hate to say, successes. There weren't any. But it just became something that I wanted to see what I could do throughout the length of my career, hopefully to improve the outcome. Yeah, you guys were considered mavericks, weren't you? Yeah, and I had mentioned this to you before we started recording that I had a patient referred from London, England, because I had given a lecture over there about some of the early results, which were pretty encouraging at the time. But I got a lot of criticism from people in the UK about doing something that should never be tried because it's a hopeless condition and that was cruel, et cetera, et cetera. And I was shocked by that, but it led to the referral of a patient who came all the way over from London. And that young lady is now 30 years old, having graduated university and having a spectacular life. Yeah. At first it was very different than it is now. Yeah. My son was born in the early nineties. And I remember going to the Perry Castaneda library at the university of Texas at Austin and looking up everything I could find about hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And your name came up. And Dr. Norwood's name came up, and there were several doctors whose names came up. But I remember reading an editorial in a medical journal that was criticizing of the yeah. people who were working on babies with HLHS. And it just broke my heart because my baby was diagnosed with HLHS. And to think that there were people in the medical field who thought that these babies I won't say weren't worth saving because that's not what they were saying. They just felt that the risks didn't outweigh the benefits. And I'm so happy to see that's not the case anymore. No, that's for sure. And I know a lot of our early successes to my colleagues in cardiology who were very supportive. They realized that this was going to be a difficult task to try to do this and that there were going to be a lot of very depressing times which they would, but they were supportive. They realized if we wanted to do something to really help, that we all had to do this together. And that was very helpful, certainly to me. One of the things that has impressed me the most about being involved in this CHD community, all of you doctors 
seem to put your egos aside and work for the greater good of the patients. And it's been so heartwarming to me to attend some of these medical conferences and see how all of you guys seem to be friends with each other. For the most part, I would say that. <laughs> say that's true. I think it is a different specialty because I think to be successful, you do have to realize that this is an amazing team effort. You just mm-hmm. can't be a maverick, go out there and I'm say, I'm going to do this and I don't need anybody's help. You can't. And so I think from the get-go, people, certainly in all pediatric specialties, but certainly in this one, realize that without unbelievably dedicated and trained cardiologists, nurses, respiratory therapy, surgeon, anesthesiologist, et cetera, everyone has to be able to work together and collaborate. And unfortunately, there are those that don't believe that, and that's a shame, but I think the enormous success rate is really there when you see how the team effort makes it. So friends, in case you haven't realized this already, as you see, we have one of the pretty much founders of surgical intervention for children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. But we're going to talk not only about hypoplastic left heart syndrome, we're also going to talk about hypoplastic right heart syndrome today and single ventricle because all of these defects are lumped together under a half a heart label. And Dr. Beauvais is going to explain to us what these different labels mean, and we're going to learn all about what it means if you have half a heart. So. Dr. Beauvais, would you start by telling us what the difference is between hypoplastic left heart syndrome and hypoplastic right heart syndrome? Yeah, sure, Anna. A lot of people tend to think we have two ventricles, two major pumping chambers of the heart, one on the right side, one on the left, and therefore we call them a right ventricle and a left ventricle. But there's a lot more to it than that because the two ventricles are not the same. They are not mirror images. They are constructed differently. They have different valves that go in and go out. The musculature is different. And the right ventricle, which is in the normal heart, the one that pumps blood to the lung, does so at a much lower resistance and pressure than the left ventricle, which pumps blood to the body, which has a much higher pressure. So when we talk about hypoplastic left heart, we are referring to the and the, the absence and the inadequacy of the morphologic, if I can use that term, left ventricle versus hypoplastic right heart, the morphologic right ventricle. And it's not simply a matter of saying one's the same as the other, they're not. And we're learning more and more about that as we see long-term follow-up to see if there are different. But both fall into the same lump category of single ventricle, which means you've only got one, not two. And at this stage of our specialties, we're not able to make another one. So somehow we have to figure a figure a way in which that one ventricle pumps blood to the higher pressure, namely to the body. Because mm-hmm. we know from decades and decades of experience that we can get blood to go to the lung in a more passive way without needing a ventricle. Right. So in essence, that's the difference. It's not a simple matter of one side versus the other. It's different anatomic ventricles. And it can be confusing. I know when my child was first diagnosed, there was a little bit of confusion because my child was born with transposition of the great vessels as well as a very tiny left ventricle. And when the surgeon got into the heart and was actually operating, he said, like you're saying, morphologically, it looked more 
like a left ventricle. The bigger ventricle looked more like a left ventricle because of the way it was striated and the way it seemed more muscular. And he wasn't sure if it was really hypoplastic right or hypoplastic left. And when my child had the third surgery, they decided to just call it single ventricle. (laughs) Well, there is a gray zone and there are some ventricles that have features that don't absolutely distinguish themselves into one or the other. Most you can tell, but that's true. And I've certainly seen patients in whom you look at it and you say, I'm not entirely sure if that's a morphologic right or a morphologic left. It seems to have some features in both. So that can happen. Yeah, yeah. So the critical thing, though, is that left ventricle, when it's not TGA, is responsible for pumping the blood to the entire body. So that's a big area that the ventricle has to pump to, whereas the right ventricle only has to pump blood to the lungs. Isn't that true? That is true. But if you go back in utero, the two ventricles are basically doing pretty much the same amount of work in utero. And the right ventricle is actually fully equipped, so to speak. In other words, it's thick enough. It can generate enough pressure to pump blood to the body. In the normal circulation, within hours to days to weeks after birth, the two circulations then really separate. The right ventricle is no longer charged with having to pump at a higher pressure or resistance. And so it literally thins out and does the work it has to do. If you don't allow it to do that, in other words, keep it working at a higher level of systemic or body pressures, then it will stay thick and it will continue to be able to do that. You're the first person to explain it to me like that, Dr. Beauvais. I didn't realize that. How interesting. That's why when you're born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, frankly, if you didn't know the diagnosis, you might not even know it at birth because the baby will look quite fine. In fact, that's one of the things that certainly got me into it. These were often very good-sized babies, beautiful babies, healthy babies. And then all of a sudden, you know, the diagnosis. So along with that little artery, inducted arteriosis, which keeps the two circulation connected. The purpose of that in utero is to keep blood out of the lungs because a fetus is not using the lung. But then once the baby is born, the lungs expand, the ductus then is stimulated to shut off because it's no longer needed. And then the right ventricle doesn't have to pump through the duct to the body. It can just simply pump to the lungs. So if you keep it open, which we can do, it'll stay thick and it'll stay functioning at that higher level. Okay. I did not know that. And my child wasn't diagnosed until his two-month baby checkup. So it's a real miracle that my child survived. But as I said, he had TGA, but he still had a PDA. He also had a PFO and he had a huge VSD, which is another reason they considered calling him physical ventricle because it really wasn't. Much separation. That's right. There is quite a variety of the defects, and we can't simply lump them into just one versus the other. There is a lot of mixture in there. That's true. And that's a lot of what stimulated the early work with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, is to realize that if these babies, in many cases, could actually live on their own, isn't there a way then that surgically we could connect the right ventricle to the aorta, the main artery? And have it continue to do the same work it had been doing. Think back to thinking behind, yes, we can do this. Problem was just the technical challenges of doing that were overwhelming. Yes. And that's what led to so many of the early failures. 
Yes. And the baby's hearts are so tiny. Did you have the kind of medical equipment back in the 80s and the 90s that you do now that allow you to see as well as you can now? Yeah. Yeah. The baby's hearts are tiny, but the reality of it, the difficulties came in, they were multi-papalite. One was the aorta in a classic hypoplastic left heart syndrome can sometimes be the size of the tip of a pin, maybe two millimeters. The importance of that is that all the blood flow to the heart muscle goes through that vessel. In other words, the coronary artery. So when you reconstructed the heart and attached the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery, which now become essentially a neo-aorta now, to that aorta, if you had any narrowing in that connection or any kind of a twist, you lost your blood flow to the coronary, then obviously that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Second big challenge was now since you were making the right ventricle connected to the aorta and therefore pumping blood to the body, you got to get some blood to the lung. How are you going to do that? A lot of different ways were tried, and eventually what people settled on was the so-called kind of a chunt. In other words, a small graph placed between an artery that goes to the body and an artery that goes to the lung to allow that blood flow to go into the lung. Now, I can remember way back when I first started doing it, I kept thinking, certainly the pinker, the better. You want more blood flow to the lungs so that the baby can oxygenate more blood and therefore has the higher oxygen level. Little did we know at that time that was absolutely wrong. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. That led to a lot of problems. Yeah, because the shunt we were putting in was simply too big. It overwhelmed the heart. It couldn't do that amount of work. And there are all sorts of other issues as to what problems it led to. And so the failures were really in large part derived from that lack of knowledge until really I remember stumbling into the fact that the bluer they were when they didn't read them, of course, came out of the operating room, the more stable they were. Wow. And we learned that you didn't need that high in oxygen level for the organ to the brain to function well. And therefore, if you limited the blood flow to the lung, you didn't make that single light ventricle work as hard, blood pressures were better, 
and it really changed how the outcome eventually. Um, cool. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. It is. You look back on it now and you think, how could you be so silly and not know that? But that was the accepted knowledge at the time that should not be an issue, but I'm sure enough. But you learn from mistakes. It's not something that's intuitive. It really wasn't. As I say, even learning that way, I remember that because of the mistake in that the shunt was narrowed and we didn't realize it at the time. So that blood flow was limited due to a technical issue. And sure enough, the baby did extremely well. Which we look back on it now, again, our whole team would sit down and talk about it and say, what's different? What did we learn? Mm. What could we do better? Mm-hmm. And that made a big difference. And it really started to change things. What we change the thought of the shunt and how we I think what's amazing to me is that a lot of the learning actually happened on humans. And it seems yeah. that today the FDA requires more and more research to be done on animals or to be done in other ways before you're allowed to operate on humans. Does that slow down the progress that can be made with some of the surgical procedures? Well, Anna, that is a very good question and one that I've actually written on in op-ed and in other things because it's really different. There is a tremendous amount of hesitancy to do anything that is novel or unique or challenging because of just the things that you said. And also because of the issues behind public reporting, which are often misunderstood when people look at outcomes. And fear that particularly younger surgeons or sometimes senior ones too, just don't want to have a bad outcome. And so they're unwilling to do some of these things. And I have to say that back again, when we were first doing this, the reality of life was the alternative was death. There was no other way that these babies could survive. And it was easier, if I could use that word, to try some of these things when the alternative looked only thing to be worse. But it is true. When we decided to use smaller shunts or do it differently, we didn't go to the board and say, okay, we want permission to say we're going to change the technique. We just did it. We just did it. And sure enough, we made progress and we started gaining more and more experience. But these days, it is no doubt much more difficult to accomplish. Wow. It amazes me that you all had the tenacity to stick with this because I know that some of the first cases must have been extremely difficult for you while you were seeing, oh my goodness, we need to make the shunt smaller. Oh, why didn't we think about this? I I will tell you a story of the first child that actually got to survive and then we didn't really know what to do next when they outdo the shunt. And I will bore you with all the details, but we tried to do the Fontan operation when the baby was just six or so months of age, which was, again, not a really good idea. And the baby eventually did not survive that. And again, to make a long story short, I was about ready to quit. It's okay, that's the end of it. I'm not doing it anymore. When I got a letter from the parent who told me how much they appreciated what we had done and that they loved having six months, even though that made terribly short, but it was better than nothing. And they just said, please keep calling. And oh. that just changed a lot of my thinking about that because I really felt like I owed them something as well. Wow. That just shows the power of the written word, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and a very needing letter than I got it anyway. Yeah. I there do believe go. there's a lot of power in writing something. And the thing is that a lot of people might be afraid, oh, Dr. Bavay's so busy, he wouldn't have time to read something from me. 
But that's not the case. A lot of times when I talk to doctors, they will tell me, oh, I was so excited to receive a Christmas card from one of my patients. And they send a picture and I can't believe how big the child is getting. And that's what keeps them going. Well, I love it, especially when I get patients from, and I enjoy looking at every one of them. And I save them. I keep them. Oh, that's wonderful. I save my Christmas cards too. Let's get back to our topic at hand, because we did talk a little bit about single ventricle. And I like that you already alluded to the fact that not all cases are black and white. It's not all like that your hypoplastic left heart syndrome child looks exactly like this other child with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. There are lots of opportunities for things to go wrong in the heart, aren't there? Well, there sure are. And as you say, even those of us in the specialty can all find things perfectly or categorize them perfectly. And that's why sometimes people, as you alluded to earlier, just say single ventricle. And maybe it doesn't matter. Our own studies coming out of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor are beginning to show that it may in fact matter. And that late survival may well be better if you have a morphologic left ventricle as your single ventricle versus a morphologic right. I don't think we know all the answers. We do know from a number of other types of defects, not necessarily single ventricles, but the, again, the morphologic right ventricle, when asked to pump blood to the body, which it, there are other conditions in which there are two ventricles that they're backward, uh, doesn't seem to hold up as well as the years go along. So we don't know why. It may have to do way the coronary blood flow reaches the heart. Again, it may have to do with how the muscle structure is there. I don't think it's obvious, certainly at this point in time, but we do know that the are just... Well, do you think that some of it also might have to do with the valves? Because I was told that I was very lucky because my child had good valves, but it seems like a lot of children who are born with either hypoplastic left or hypoplastic right heart syndrome also have major issues with their valves. And you're exactly right. But the, the valve leading into the ventricle, which is the valve, if it's a more right, or mitral valve, is the morphologic left. They are also structured very different. And when a right ventricle, I'm going to get into some stuff that's going to get confusing, but when a right ventricle pumps blood and a lower pressure into the lung, its shape is different than when it pumps blood to the body. It has And therefore, the wall between the two moves in a different direction. That may lead to that tricuspid valve developing a leakage, which is called insufficiency of the valve, which then adds a whole other set of problems. So that is true. The way those valves are formed and the way they attach inside the ventricle does make a difference as well. And they also play a role in why right ventricles when pumping at higher pressure do not last as long and do as well as left ventricles. Doesn't happen to all patients. We don't know why some don't, but certainly that's okay. I think that the amazing thing is the more we learn, the more we need to know. <laughs> don't you well, think? that's always the case. Isn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. Every question we think we've answered only raises a whole pool of new questions to keep going. But Again, I think that's what we're now able to sort out as we are seeing babies and children live into their teenage years and well beyond. We now have so much more ability to evaluate things, look at them, understand what issues may be and what problems perhaps we can avoid even from day one of life. Just that years ago, we didn't know that was going to be a problem. Right. Just like before prostaglandin E1 was 
I don't know if it was created or discovered. We lost children because that ductus would close too quickly. But now you have an artificial means of keeping that ductus open. Isn't that right? Absolutely true. I used to joke that I don't know if it saved more children or more surgeons because now we have to get up in the middle of the night to do a shelter. Yeah. Because yeah. you can keep the ductus open and have the baby stabilized and then be able to move a shunt or whatever you're doing, depending on the condition, in a much more likely fashion. And of course, the babies were much healthier and better off. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Let's talk about the history, because I find the history of what you surgeons did way back in the 1980s fascinating. And we know that Dr. William Norwood made a name for himself and has a surgery named after him when he decided to save children with HLHS. But there were some children who survived even before Dr. Norwood invented his procedure. They were just creative and used other means of saving these children. Can you tell me a brief history of saving children with single ventricle heart? Yeah, I think a lot of it's so anecdotal because if you look back and you go into the literature, which I really did when I started doing this, you would find a case report. In other words, one patient who had an operation and maybe that child survived. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't think any of them had any long-term survival. These were survival of judgment simply being able to get out of the hospital from the initial operation. And there was some way that were conceived that now we call them hybrid procedures, mm-hmm. but there were some ways that were very similar to hybrid procedures back, I think back probably in the 60s and 70s wow. when there were surgeons trying to do this. And they would limit the blood flow to the lungs by placing little encircling bands around the right and the left branch PA and then keeping the ductus open or making a surgical connection because the ductus obviously was closed but in some way making a connection so that the right ventricle could pump to the body. These are been morphed into these hybrid procedures when we see babies that are born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and other conditions who really are such high risk. For example, they're born very premature, extremely low birth weight, a neurologic condition in which you don't want heparin to stop blood from clotting during surgery, that to try to do the standard Norwood procedure 
within the first two days of life, they'd be extraordinarily risky until a hybrid procedure was done. And they take back some of the early days of how some of these babies were counted. I do remember reading a paper that I looked at, and the conclusion was that they had solved the problem and the success rate was just wonderful. Based on one patient, oh, no. to the my knowledge, actually didn't <laughs> even live all that long. There were certainly some over yellow people claiming that this was going to work, and in the end didn't. But these all, every little step taught people something new about how to manage the problem. And I think it was really with Dr. Norwood. He then came up with how he was doing it, which was also similar to how others were doing it, but he put it all together. And the, the thing was is that Dr. Norwood was the first person to really have a complete success doing the operation as he had signed it, which mm-hmm. was basically a takeoff on how other people did it, but he combined things and then he developed absolutely wonderful skill and ingenuity into the operation that now bears his name. So it was little step after little step until someone finally put it all together and made it work. Yeah, it's amazing to me how I have met people through the last 28 years who also have a single ventricle heart and were told they had HLHS and they made it before Dr. Norwood popularized his procedure. So I knew there were other doctors who were working on some children I had veterinarian write for my book, The Heart of a Father. He was the oldest person I knew who was diagnosed with HLHS who survived, and he was born before 1981, which is when I believe Dr. Norwood published his first paper noting the success rates. Is that about right? I think that's right. I've forgotten exactly, but that sounds about right now. If you have a small or inadequate left ventricle and you're transposed, so that your aorta comes off your right ventricle. The aorta, obviously, is now being supported by the morphologic right ventricle. Even though the left ventricle is not useful, it may be missing, typically don't call that hypoplastic left ventricle. You typically call it a single ventricle because hypoplastic left heart syndrome, at least as I would define it, it means the circulation that is dependent on the right ventricle and the circulation in which the aorta or aortic valve is inadequately guarded. So you have to have both. And if your aorta comes off the right ventricle, it's usually normal size and normally formed. So you could have survival of someone that you might say is hypoplastic left ventricle, which it is, but it's not the hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Right. And that's when the confusion comes in. Uh-huh. I think it's easy to get confused, especially before we had MRIs and the sophisticated tools that we have today for diagnosing. Look at 3D hearts. We can even make oh, yeah. an image that looks like your child's heart. Has that been a boon for you surgeons? I think it's still a work in progress. And yes, it's helpful, but I think the echocardiogram, my echocardiography colleagues are so phenomenal at how they're able to define all the anatomy that the 3D imaging is helpful in some cases, but I've actually found it to be a little misleading in others. I think the jury's still out, but it's getting better and everything else, it will continue to improve and no doubt be a significant help at some point in the I wondered if surgeons would print some of these 3D hearts to practice doing surgery on or just to see if it yeah. was feasible to do something on a model 
instead of having to do it on the patient themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's really where the role of the 3D reconstruction will come in. If you're, you're able to look and you're able to then figure out, can I make the connection between the ventricle on one side and the aorta on the other side? Do I have room? Am I able to do the reconstruction the way I think I can? But again, I would say at this point in time, with the MRI and the echo that we have, I find that you're able to make that decision pretty routinely, but pretty accurately without a 3D reconstruction, because I think the 3D reconstruction isn't exactly yet up to full speed, but it will get there. Yeah. It's like anything. We just have to give it some time and we have to allow for mistakes to be made so we can learn from those mistakes and move forward. Well, I agree with you. And and as we said a little bit earlier, that needs thing become more difficult to do, understandably, but it's made some of it a lot more challenging to be able to make progress. It seems on Facebook, Dr. Beauvais, that we have people who fall into three major categories and they call themselves Fontaners. And those are people like my child who ended up with a Fontan procedure as the final procedure in the palliative care. And then we have transplant recipients And then we have people who are non-Fontaners, who are living with a bidirectional gland or just a BT shunt. So can you tell us about some of the typical treatment plans for patients who have single ventricle hearts? That could take the rest of the day. But again, and a lot of this is my own bias, and I have to admit to that. But I think if you have a single ventricle shunt, the best treatment that we have is staging to a Fontaine. Now, by no means is that perfect. And yet it has issues essentially later in life. I understand that. But if you back up a minute and you take, I don't know, 10 babies with a single ventricle at birth, the likelihood of having 10 available hearts for transplant is slim and young because there's only so many of them. Right. Transplants are not exactly risk-free and there can be problems down the road. We understand all. So if you have a heart that is suitable for single ventricle reconstruction if other factors such as chromosomal abnormalities or other major issues are absent, then I think the best mode is to go down what we call a single ventricle pathway and to remove all the major potential limitations of having a good Fontan outcome. That's where the Glenn comes in. I think one of the big advantages or one of the big progress steps we made the early Glenn operation, or, or as we do it in Ann Arbor and some other places, well, the Henny Fontan. I don't want to confuse the audience. They're basically the same thing. But what this does is allow the heart to now only have to pump the amount of blood it should have to pump to the body, as opposed to having to pump blood to the body and to the lung, which what we call volume overload. So living with a shunt, and you mentioned that as one group, a play-locked out group, means you're living with the volume overload. And eventually, if you look at the main reason of death of single ventricle patients later in life, it's failure of the ventricle. If you volume overload it, it's going to fail sooner. So we then go back and say, okay, so how are we going to try to avoid those risks and get the best long-term outcome? It would be doing whatever palliation is necessary as a newborn, be that a Norwood or a band or even just the shunt. And then, at the appropriate age, which we think is somewhere around four to six months of age, getting rid of the volume overload, in other words, getting rid of that shunt and doing a glint. 
mm-hmm. because you can do very well with the Glen for a number of years. What happens, of course, as children then get older and they start running around and being normal kids, they'll get bluer with just the Glen. So you need more blood flow to the lung, and that's where the Fontan comes in. So, yes, my own personal feeling is that if you want to look at the best way to get the best survival out of the most patients, and I know, again, everybody's different, is to go down the single ventricle path, understanding as well that at some point in line, hopefully not the 30, 40, 50 years, that plantain is probably not going to continue to function well and a transplant would be necessary. But if you can avoid a transplant for 40, 50 years, keep your old heart and be active and enjoy your life with a good quality, I think that's a better outcome. Well, it's amazing. And obviously, you've grown to adulthood. There are definitely more adult hearts available for transplant than there are infant hearts. So you increase your likelihood that you will receive a heart transplant. Yeah, I think that's true. And I realize that, again, nothing is cut and dry. And you do have some patients who may get a transplant as a newborn infant and live decades. Fantastic. It's just that the likelihood, we have to make a decision early in life, which way to go without having personal that's going to tell us. And so if you want to look at the best odds for the most patient, that's the case. Also coming down the line, as you probably know, are some really good research being done for essentially support devices, which can support devices for patients with fitness. Like the LVAD? Yeah, similar to that sort of thing. That's exactly right. Small devices that are going to be easily adapted, very patient-friendly, and great work being done over at the Riley Children's in Indiana. With some really good stuff with it, and I think that's going to become certainly reality in the not-too-terribly-distant future and will open yet another mode of us being able to help patients when and if they get to the stage in life where the Fontaine circulation is no longer given Well, we only have a few more minutes left. I could talk to you for days about this because there's so many different things that we need to learn. But before we go, I just want to talk about statistics because I was a math teacher. I love numbers. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, the numbers that I was given way back in 1994 were not good. The numbers that I was quoted was that for children with HLHS, which is what my son was initially diagnosed with, that if the child survived the Norwood procedure, that only one in four of those children would live to the age of five. And that was the best stats that they had at that time. Things have changed dramatically. So can you talk to us about survival statistics now? And I know it would be different for every institution, but just as a rule. Yeah, the survival statistics have changed dramatically. Again, in my own institution in Ann Arbor, I think we've had something like a 98% success rate of the Norwood for two, three years in a row, dramatically different from when we started. And a lot of things, of course, are the So now I would say standard success rate really for Norwood should be at least 90%. In and there will be some patients who do not survive to make it to the next stage, but those are getting to be few and far between as well. I don't know the precise numbers coming out. I think there's some multi-tenor studies that want to be able to tell us better. But now I think we're looking more in the 80% five-year survival rate than we are in the 20%, somewhere in that range, 80, 85%. 
probably again does vary a little bit from center to center, but I think if you were to look at a large numbers of patients from multi-center studies, when you're looking at centers, you really do significant volume because they have good outcomes. You're probably in that range. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, really. Now, I think that we now are so much more concerned with how these children develop and how they function, how they go to school and, and their neurodevelopmental progress as opposed to just getting into that post Right. We have new concerns. <laughs> we have new problems to solve, but that's what keeps us moving forward, right? Exactly right. And by the time we get to a new stage, as we said earlier, more questions arrive and hopefully more answers will come soon thereafter. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us, Dr. Beauvais. This has been amazing to me. It's my pleasure, Anna. I'd always love being you. I guess if you could put it that way by Gene, but I always love being with you in free. Aww. And I admire so much what you're doing and please keep doing it. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. That means so much to me. Well, friends, that does conclude the CHD Spotlight. Tune in tomorrow for our CHD and Society episode. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.